Hello, this is Daryl with an intro to a very special episode of the Total Soccer Show. Here's what's happening. Taylor and I are in Frankfurt, Germany on the Bundesliga media trip we've been talking about. Actually, I'm here. Taylor is en route because his flight was delayed, but he promises me he'll be here later. While we're out of town, we've given the keys to the Total Soccer Show to Joe Lowry, who you'll know from his frequent TSS appearances, and Jordan Angeli. Both Joe and Jordan are tactically savvy and MLS experts. We wouldn't give the keys to just anyone, you know? And they're going to break down and analyze the two MLS conference finals for you from the past couple of days. Before I do the actual handover of the keys, I want to let you know about today's sponsor. Today's TSS is sponsored by Enclosed. If you look at the calendar, the holiday season is fast approaching. And if you're looking for something different for your significant other, you can spice things up by getting them some high-end lingerie from Enclosed. We're not talking department store or Victoria's Secret. We're talking seriously high-end products. And with the Enclosed size guarantee, everything fits right 98% of the time. So go to enclosed.gifts and use the code TOTALSOCCER, all one word, at checkout to get $35 off any multi-month order. One more time, that's enclosed.gifts and the code is TOTALSOCCER for $35 off any multi-month order. The link will be in the show notes. Okay, here's the music and on the other side, you'll be in the very capable hands of Joe and Jordan. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. In case you couldn't tell by my lack of a British accent, my name is not Daryl Grove and I will not be joined by Taylor Rockwell today. Daryl and Taylor have given me the keys to the Total Soccer Show kingdom for this episode to break down some of the latest Major League Soccer playoff action. Joining me on the show today is Jordan Angeli, a former NWSL player and a current analyst for the Colorado Rapids. Jordan, how are you doing today? Are you recovered from the MLS Conference final action we saw? Oh, not yet, man. What an exciting playoffs this has been. It's, it's been so much fun. It really has been. I mean, these four teams in the conference finals, you've got Seattle, who had won the 2016 edition of the MLS postseason, then Toronto in 2017, Atlanta in 2018, and LAFC as the 2019 Supporter Shield winners. You have this elite group of teams, both in terms of their performances this season and their performances in past years, and getting to see all these four squads with their managers as well come into these games. It was exciting. It was more than exciting because you not only got to see these past champions, right? The people that knew and believed that they could do it again because they've already been there or they've won a shield or they've won something um, of note in the last few years that then they come in and I think it allowed for these games to be really intriguing matchups in the sense that we didn't really know what to expect, right? Uh, What was Greg Vanny going to do? What was LAFC going to do? Were they going to play the same way as they did against LA Galaxy? Were they going to go after Seattle um, for Toronto and Greg Vanny? Was he going to try to high press and and stop this Atlanta squad from getting kind of any momentum or sit back a little bit and try to possess? There was like so many tactical things that you didn't really un- you didn't know because I think these teams can throw you a wrench and we saw a little bit of that and it played out in a way where 
Joe, I don't think you could have asked anybody, is this going to be MLS <laughs> Cup final? And they would have said it's these two teams. No, you certainly couldn't have asked me that question. Uh, you know, for the listeners, Jordan and I had had a conversation earlier this week when we were talking through some of the things that we were thinking about for these games and what we were expecting to see. And, and at no point in our conversation did we ever say that the Seattle Sounders would be facing off with Toronto FC in the final. Um, just to give a little bit of You didn't hear me a, say that? No, I didn't. I didn't. Maybe you stuck it in there right at the end as I was hanging out. But uh, I'm pretty sure I said it. No, I'm just well, kidding. Prob- we both were like LAFC Atlanta. And, and it, that's exactly the opposite of what happened in these games. So Seattle Sounders came in and faced off against LAFC on uh, Tuesday. And they ended up coming into Bank of California Stadium and winning 3-1 to one against Bob Bradley's team. And then in the Eastern Conference, Wednesday night, Toronto came into uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium and upset Atlanta United 2-1. to one. So we had these matches that were, I mean, nigh on impossible to predict, at least certainly for me and, and I'm guessing a lot of others around the soccer media landscape. So it, it really was a, a battle between these two teams, between these two matches of teams looking to exploit the other tactically and ride momentum and, and just create havoc in these single elimination games. So um, if you don't have anything else to get to before we get into this analysis, Jordan, let's go ahead and start with LAFC versus Seattle Sounders. I do have one thing to add because I think we see something that's really significant and it's going to play out in MLS for years to come is this new playoff format. And everybody was talking about it when it happened uh, last year, right at the end of the year, right when we found out after MLS Cup that this is what it's going to look like this year. And until you're really in those moments, you don't know what it's going to be like. With the home and away series, which it was before like that in MLS, that gives you a little bit of a a tactical advantage. You can almost play chess a little bit and and see how the opponent's going to play and say, hey, if we get this result on the road, then we can do this at home and still get an advantage and win this series. But for a single elimination, everything changes. And we saw that in these games. You can't play the same style of soccer that you did through the 34-game MLS season and expect to be successful. You have to figure out a way to be successful in that 90 minutes. And honestly, I feel like we've seen that over and over again in these these matches. The team that just figured out a way to uh, almost frustrate the other team I think we is almost a key in some of the victories that we saw. It really just changed this whole playoff scheme, and I think it's been it's been so intriguing to watch those matchups and see how the playoffs have really all played out. It, it's so true because even just looking at that LAFC Seattle game specifically. We saw LAFC come out in and try to do the same things that we've seen over and over from them this season, and that's and that's in a, not at all an indictment of Bob Bradley's you know strategic planning or anything like that. That's more of honestly, uh, it should be props to him for how he has structured this squad and, and how detail oriented they've become and how you know relied how reliable they've become from an on field perspective. But we saw Seattle come in and, and play away from home and come in and just turn the game completely on its head, especially coming in after having watched LAFC beat the Galaxy for the very first time. Maybe they didn't defend as well as, as they could mm-hmm. have or as they should have, but they took 
the hold of that game. They took a hold of the attacking play in that match and, and imposed their will on the Galaxy. And then we see that completely flipped in this match. We see you know the Seattle Sounders come out from the start and they're a little bit more aggressive. And, and just their entire game plan really did seem to be about getting out early, starting starting hot from the Seattle Sounders, and then making life as difficult for LAFC as possible. And, and that's what these 90-minute games can do to you, where, where LAFC might have been okay to either play that game to a draw or just live to fight another day in the regular season. They didn't have that luxury in this match, and, and that's ultimately a lot of what played into their loss in this game, at least in my opinion. Definitely. One of the things that you and I spoke about, too, over the course of this season is Seattle has been like this weird team where I just can't really figure them out, right? I can't figure out uh, exactly some of the strategies that they were trying to do uh, tactically going forward or defensively as a squad. They were just a struggle for me, especially in these first couple playoff games. I, I would watch and I'm like, I'm just not... I'm not seeing very many patterns. I'm not seeing anything that sticks out to me as like, okay, this is how Seattle wants to play. I think it led that 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 was their advantage in this game. Because when you go play LAFC, you know what you're going to get. When you're playing Seattle, you don't really know. So I think LAFC went in there and didn't know what to expect. Whereas Seattle was like, okay, these are the things we have to take out of the game plan for LAFC in order to be successful. They executed that, but not only that, they imposed their will a little bit on LAFC, which made them feel uncomfortable um, even in their home venue. Absolutely. That's the whole sentiment, I think, coming out of Seattle and their their fans and people who cover the team up there is that this is a performance, the, the performance that the Seattle Sounders put in on Tuesday night is unlike any performance they've put in this season. They had a recognizable, you know, firm defensive structure that played majorly into the result of this game. And then they also were extremely efficient with how they transitioned. And so those two factors, I think, were were not only surprising a little bit to LAFC, but also to, you know, Seattle, maybe not maybe not necessarily their players or coaching staff because they know what they're capable of doing and capable of performing. But to a lot of the people who watch this team regularly, it wasn't necessarily the most obvious performance or, or certainly not the most expected one. Um, yeah. So... Looking at this game specifically, trying to be a little bit more detail-oriented, what, Jordan, what is one thing that you that you saw from this game that LAFC maybe tried to do or, or an element of their style of play mm-hmm. that the Sounders were able to, to, to tweak a little bit and to maybe get it underneath their skin and neutralize that threat? Well, you know that the Sounders have a threat in Evans, right? As an outside back, he's going to try to get forward. And he has the speed, he has the pace, he has the ability in the attacking third to hurt you. But I thought it was interesting that LAFC didn't play Beta Shore. They played Blackman and Rossi uh, on that side. I get playing Rossi there because he has a little bit more defending tendencies than Rodriguez does, who played on the left side. But I also feel like that's a give and take. If that's your strength and that's a player that you don't want to have to defend as much, and he's very good on the left side as well, I would almost see, okay, let's play him on the left side and see if he can get after Seattle on that that way with a little bit more a little less defensive responsibilities. What I started noticing is Blackman did this in the game. So working with the Colorado Rapids, the last game of regular season, they played LAFC and Blackman as well started on the outside in right outside back and was playing with Rossi in front of him. And Blackman is a really interesting character when he's playing outside back because he almost plays 
in three different positions. He can play and get the ball as like a traditional outside back and a four back where he's on the the wing and he connects with somebody inside and he feels comfortable then getting up the line uh, trying to receive the ball again or connecting with Rossi there. But what Rossi likes to do is isolate somebody out wide. So Blackman found that inside channel and he, he would pop inside and almost be in the same line of play horizontally on the field as Atuesta would be. So he's like uh, another holding midfielder. He would be tucked so far inside that when the ball would switch the point, Rossi would then be isolated on the wing and Blackman would try to pick it up in the center of the midfield and then connect through there. It's a really hard thing tactically to defend if you're Seattle or whatever given team LAFC is playing against. But what I thought Seattle did really well is with the speed and pace of Evans, they knew that if if Blackman was showing that and he was being a little eager and getting the ball centrally or even pressing up, there were multiple times where he was up on the, the forward line beyond Rossi, almost next to Vela, uh, all the way up on the back four. And Seattle punished them. That's where the goals came from, was on that right side, right side defensively for LAFC. Um, especially that first goal, it was a, a clearance a distribution from Tyler Miller and Blackman tucked inside because Blackman has the size to win a head ball centrally, right? So you're going to put him in there over you're going to over uh, Latif Blessing, who was in the game still at that point, or uh, Diego Ro- Rossi. You're going to put him in there to try to flick that ball on. Well, he doesn't win the head ball. And what does Seattle do? They go right into that space where Blackman was missing from. When they do that with Jordan Morris, it pulls Atuesta out. And I had mentioned to you, I think that I thought that the game uh, against both LAFC and Atlanta United, that there was going to be a pocket of space that was going to be super crucial for the opposing teams to try to really get after. And it's that space right next to the holding midfielders. And it's right in front of the center back. It's not quite in the channel, but it's this little pocket that if you can start to find the ball in there and pull those holding midfielders out of the central position, you might try to find some joy. And literally Seattle did just that. Morris gets the ball, Atuesta comes over, and then... From there, Ladero gets it in the space that Atuesta leaves. They connect with Rui Diaz, and the man of the day scores um, with the most swift feet, right? I don't, I don't know how he got through that, but it was beautiful. And it was just a quick transition uh, using that space that Blackman was continuing to leave unoccupied. And that's the give and take of LAFC system, right? Is is the amount of effort that they put into getting bodies forward, and then after mm-hmm. they lose the ball, pressing quickly to win it back. That's the risk that they play when they when they push those people forward. There is space in behind, and that's so so often in this match, as you detail, Jordan was was a key key thing to be keeping an eye on because. Once Seattle won the ball, it was a matter of, you know, were they going to get themselves out of defensive shape and, and then lose the ball to LAFC's counterpress, or were they going to break through that pressure and find space? You know, most often that space came on their left side through Jordan Morris and then Nico Lodero and Raul Ruiz Diaz. And, and those matchups in this game were absolutely essential because so many teams in this league have the ability 
to at least make life a little bit difficult for a team that wants to possess. And almost any team can sit back and, and bunker a little bit and play a more low defensive block. But there aren't many teams that can do that and then also ruthlessly attack you in transition. Yeah. And that's that's just the brutal one-two punch that Seattle has. Not that they sat deep for the entirety of this game because they didn't. They came out early and they, they pressed higher in their 4-4-2 block. And they had Rui Diaz and Lodero pressed high up against LAFC's backline and goalkeeper and build-up unit. But they have the ability to be versatile. And I think that's a big part of what they did so well in this match that maybe we hadn't seen too much of in the past. As we saw them put all of those pieces together... And that's just an absolutely lethal combination of these things. They defended with discipline. They attacked with discipline. And that's, I mean, if you're LAFC, it's almost like you can't even be upset that you lost this match. Yes, they didn't do things as well. They didn't move the ball as quickly or as with as much purpose as Bob Bradley would have liked. I mean, he mentioned that in his halftime interview. Uh-huh. They didn't move the ball with enough purpose to shift Seattle's defensive shape side to side to create gaps between, maybe between those holding midfielders and the outside midfielders or between their defensive lines. They didn't do that well enough. But, uh-huh. you know, also Seattle deserve credit for how they defended that. They deserve credit for how they closed down space, for how... You know, they took they had Lodero pressing up against pressing up against Eduardo Atuesta and, and taking him to an extent out of possession and making LASC pursue different avenues, whether that's Blackman tucking inside, Lee Wynn dropping a little bit deeper, and Mark Anthony K when he came on for Latif Blessing after he went down with an injury. You know, Seattle adjusted to those things well. They also adjusted to that wide play. So much of what LAFC like to do is is isolate they attack isolate those attackers out wide on the wing against the opposing fullbacks or against a wide midfielder, whatever it is. And Seattle did such an incredible job, whether that's Brad Smith playing at left back or Leardom at right back or Jordan Morris or Joven Jones, all these outside defenders. They did a great job of, of sticking with those talented attackers for LAFC, whether that's Carlos Vela when he had drifted wide after you know starting as more of a false nine in the center of that forward line, or whether that's Brian Rodriguez or Diego Rossi. They did just a really admirable job of defending, and that's that's something that I think Brian Schmetzer will be looking to key in on to continue yeah. that trend as they move forward to MLS Cup. They set the tone, too. Absolutely. I don't think that should go unsaid. The way that they took Carlos Vela out of the game by simply just beating up on him, honestly, right? Like some of those non-calls would be absolute calls in most games. And I think that is very challenging for players who are creative types because you know that you're going to have somebody kicking and scraping at your ankles all game long and and shoulder tackling you like that shoulder to shoulder. Yes. It was a shoulder to shoulder at the beginning of the game, but it was also super aggressive. And I think if it wasn't in the box, it probably would have gotten called. Um, So I, I think that them setting the tone, not only with their pressing, like you mentioned, but how they, they didn't let Carlos Vela play that false nine. And they hunted him into the midfield and said, all right, you're going to get the ball here, but we're going to be right on your back. And we're going to make sure that you feel me the whole entire time really made it difficult for LAFC to feel comfortable at all. And that was somewhat surprising to me as well, because 
we'd seen Vela do a good job, at least in my opinion, against the Galaxy of playing that role as a central forward. And he's had experience doing that in the past as mm-hmm. well. And on that first goal for LAFC, their only goal of the game, he did a great job of drawing, you know, Seattle center backs out of position, you know, putting on a move and then drawing a foul. And that's what led to Atuesta's free kick goal with his right foot. I mean, we, we saw this trend starting to develop, but then it's almost like Seattle flipped a switch and they, they dug in and really just did an excellent, efficient job of stepping to him, not giving him space, but also not, not stepping overly aggressively. They, they did just enough and found that perfect balance between coming out of their shape and also maintaining defensive solidity. And that's, mm-hmm. that balance is so hard to strike, especially when you're defending a guy who's as versatile as Carlos Vela. Yeah, it did feel like a little ebb and flow from Seattle, right? Like, okay, let's high pressure. Okay, now let's sit back. Okay, now let's high pressure. Now let's sit back. And I think what worked for them in that and where you have to credit a manager who can feel the game is that that was something that had to have been discussed, right? There's going to be moments where we can go as a unit and try to keep the the field compact and try to win the ball up as high as possible and make LAFC feel uncomfortable. But there was times when then they sat back a little bit more. One of the things that we didn't see, I don't think until the second half is a ball in behind for LAFC, right? Something that we've seen so many times from this squad over the course of the year is they have pace up front with those three front runners and they want to utilize that quick transition and the ability of their midfielders and and everybody right we saw Segura hit a good pass breaking the line in the last game that they want a quick counter and try to get in that space behind and push the opposing defense as far back as possible or get in behind and go one-on-one with the goalkeeper there was not one breakaway and that's again I think that's just says everything about how Seattle approached this game if from a defensive perspective the fact that they were able to close down space in front of them and eliminate a lot of those gaps in behind mm-hmm. and yeah also at the same time it's a it's a dual thing right part of the blame should be on LAFC for not exploiting those or not creating enough of those chances but i mean absolute credit to how Seattle set themselves up and how they defended as a unit it wasn't at, at no point in this game did we see anything like one player stepping out of shape and then the next player going. It was always as a as a collective yeah. unit and how they really pressured was. and how they absorbed LAFC's possession. And I think that's absolutely going to serve them well as they head into MLS Cup. Yeah, hosting, you think? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, um, you said something earlier at Tuesta and him in the midfield being a little bit slow, right? Oh, Bob Bradley mentioned it at halftime, right? He wasn't happy with the pace at which his team was playing. So after Bob Bradley said that, I went back and watched, and I watched about 25 minutes of the first half again, and he was absolutely right. The amount of extra time, and I'm just saying extra time in a very <laughs> exaggerative, exaggerative way, right? I, it's like a half a second the extra touch on the ball. It's taking a little bit longer of a touch and then the option not being there anymore. LAFC beats teams and they dominate teams because they get the ball and they play. They know where they're going to the next option, where the next option is, where that next player could be or where they've worked on these patterns of switching the point of attack through a central midfielder who is on the half turn. It was slow from them. And I think that really hurt them, especially when they felt like they started to have to chase the game, right? Um, if they if they would have figured out a way to get on the ball a little bit quicker, move the ball, because I think it was there. It wasn't as if the passes weren't there. It was like the run was 
already gone and they played it behind the run or they took an extra touch. I think that really got them off their game. And that wasn't anything uh, that Seattle did. That was something that LAFC was doing it themselves. Absolutely. And that's that lack of, of pace and almost a sense of urgency is just such a brutal way from an outsider's perspective, a brutal way to see LAFC's historically good season end, to see this style of play that Bob Bradley and the rest of his coaching staff have worked, you know, from day one that they brought this roster together last season, have worked to implement into this into this group of guys. It's it's tough to see it end that way, but at the same time, that circles back to our conversation about this this new single elimination format. We see these teams come in. I mean, the playoffs are now the great equalizer in MLS. If you can make it to the playoffs, it it truly it obviously does require a well put together game plan and an excellent execution of that game plan from players, but. It even proves the point that we can see a historically good team like LAFC come down, fall to the Seattle Sounders, who are now going to be playing an MLS Cup on Sunday, November 10th. Before we go ahead and move into the next right. matchup, Atlanta United and Toronto FC, uh, we're going to talk about today's sponsor, and that is Roughneck Scarves. Uh, Roughneck Scarves is the official scarf provider for U.S. soccer, Major League Soccer, the NCAA, and USL. And I don't know about you, Jordan, even here out in Arizona, it's starting to get a little bit nippy. Um, it's starting to get a little chilly. Uh, I was bundled up in a jacket pretty much all day today. Uh, people can make fun of me for that. It probably didn't dip below 65. But, it, you know, to each his own, right? It just snowed 12 inches here in Colorado. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe you need the scarf a little bit more than I do. But I think now is the perfect time of year to be going out and to be looking into these soccer-themed scarves, don't you think? Absolutely. Especially when you're getting into MLS Cup and the final happening, and you can get either one of these teams, right? Absolutely. Roughneck Scarves is committed to providing passionate soccer fans like MLS fans of these two final teams remaining uh, with outstanding customer service design and the highest quality scarves uh, in the world. So they have scarves for U.S. national teams if you're a United States men's or women's national team fan. Right now it's it's probably a little bit easier to be a women's national team fan than it is to be a proponent of the men's side of the federation. But if you want a scarf for either one of those two teams or, or any MLS team, that could be at this point, if you want to show your Seattle pride at CenturyLink Field on, on November 10th, or if you're a visiting Toronto FC fan who wants to, to fly that red that red color on your scarf, you can come in to centrally link with either one of those flags. Or or you can create a custom scarf if you if you're an Atlanta fan or an LAFC fan who's a little bit bitter. Uh, you can you can create something a little bit custom that uh, that maybe makes a little bit of fun at the other team or, or puts together a different style of scarf. You can do all of these things. Uh, all-inclusive pricing. Roughneck has simple and honest pricing with, with no hidden fees, no unexpected shipping charges, and no surprises. So if you're looking to get a reliable scarf uh, with, with a design flair or, or with a tried-and-true design of one of your favorite MLS teams or, or any team involved in the American soccer professional landscape, use the code TOTALSOCCERSHOW, all caps, that's TOTALSOCCERSHOW, to get 20% off any scarf at roughneckscarves.com. That's R-U-F-F, neckscarves.com. Now, Jordan, let's go ahead and get back into the uh, the second half of this MLS Conference final. Uh, we got Atlanta United versus Toronto FC. And frankly, I think I'm still recovering a little bit from this match. This was absolutely insane. It went against everything. And we talked about this before. It went against everything that we thought, everything that we believed, everything that I thought this game was going to have. It did have, but it, then again, it just didn't turn out at all like we expected. Uh, what do you make of this game? Is, is there one specific thing that you pinpointed that you can use to make any semblance of, of reason out of what we witnessed? Man, it's really difficult because watching Atlanta play during regular season, if they score an early goal, 
they start to dominate the game, right? And it's hard for a team to even get a whiff of getting back into it. So when they scored that early goal, it was almost as if I, I was sitting on my couch thinking, this could get ugly. Because right at the beginning, it, especially Michael Bradley, he was just getting pulled around by Pitti Martinez. And I, was a, I think it was a really good call by DeBoer to keep Martinez in the game with his performance in the last playoff game. He looked fresh and ready to go. And there was a, a little excitement about Pitti Martinez that I think we've all been expecting this whole season and in the playoffs he's really starting to ignite that and and show off a little bit of what he can do but what was crazy to me is they score the early goal and Toronto looked um, they just looked discombobulated I think would be the easiest way to say it it was as if they were pressing individually and if one person would go to press the ball, that next pass would happen, and then that person would try to go press the ball. So it was, instead of anticipating where the, the pressure on the ball was going and leading that, that player on the ball into a space where you want them to go defensively, they were doing that, and then that person, that next in line person in the press wasn't there. And it was so easy for Atlanta to just chop through the defense of Toronto early on and it it needed it needed an adjustment it needed somebody to just say hey let's stay compact right like if we can't go we can't go and I felt like Toronto wanted to go and make Atlanta feel uncomfortable like we saw Seattle do to LAFC but it didn't work in the same sense because they all didn't go together and that's the way this game started when when things were still even at nil nil. Toronto came out and they they pressured Atlanta's build up much like they did in the game against NYCFC in the last round that that Toronto ended up winning on a on a late goal from uh, Pozuelo. Toronto pressured up in mu- in much of the same way. They had Osorio and Delgado, their two central midfielders, in what essentially was Greg Vanny's four three three. Those those two guys playing in front of Michael Bradley. They had them press. On, uh, on Nagby and Laurentowitz, Atlanta United's two central midfielders in Frank DeBoer's double pivot. And so those two guys would match up with Nagby and Laurentowitz, and they would deny any access into those two players. Then the, the breakdown, at least in my opinion, on this first goal came a little bit from Michael Bradley's matchup with Pitti Martinez, as you already highlighted a little bit, Jordan. That was a, a key battle in this game, was who would who would use space more effectively? Would Bradley be able to close down Martinez's space and limit his ability to impact the game and to turn and to connect play? Or, or would Pitti Martinez truly be able to settle in and have an impact like we've been waiting for for most of mm-hmm. the season? And on this first goal, Brad Guzan played the ball out of pressure to Florentine, Florentine Pogba on the left wing. Pogba headed it over pressure to Barco, and this is where it all broke down. And, and against NYCFC, Bradley did a really good job of managing Maxi Morales as that attacking midfielder. He did a good job of marking him, especially in the early stages, and denying his ability to impact the game and to get on the ball. And that was that was what was missing in this sequence, is Pitti Martinez was able to find space. Michael Bradley didn't do a good job of picking him up. And I think eventually that's what led to the goal that Martinez was able to square across the box to Gressel, and that ended up being Atlanta's only goal of the match but it did sort of seem at the time at the time of that goal like that sequence is going to keep coming up over and over again that the Mm -hmm. way Atlanta were using their midfield space and using their overloads and using Martinez as sort of that final playmaker before getting all the way into the attacking third it seemed like that was going to be the way this game was headed and then 
it just didn't. It didn't. It went into halftime, and Frank DeBoer was very positive. He was very happy with how his team was playing, and he had every right to be. You know, despite the fact that Joseph Martinez had missed a penalty that would have put them 2-0 up, they were still playing well. They were moving the ball. They were controlling the game completely with those midfield overloads between Nagby, Laurentowitz, Pitti Martinez, and then whichever one of Barco or Gressel or sometimes both wanted to tuck into that midfield. And it was fun. You know, it was fun to see Atlanta have this it was fun to see them possess and to control the game and to move into different spaces and then counterpress after they lost it. And it really did feel like even heading into the beginning of the second half that they were going to pull away with this one, or, or at least it did to me. Mm-hmm. I think going back, there's a couple points in the first half that I think um, need to be hit on because this, the PK that you mentioned that ends up getting saved by Westberg, which is a gigantic save and really changes the course of the game for Toronto because if they go down two, there's, I don't think there's a way that they're getting back from that. Um, If it's that same space. And one of the things that Atlanta does so well is they, they work that relationship between gosh, it's, it's Barco, it's Joseph Martinez, it's Pitti Martinez. It's even sometimes Gressel where they're trying to get in the space between the center backs, right? We've seen, Joseph on a long ball go straight in between the center backs and expose on a counterattack there. But on the PK, it's that space where Michael Bradley gets pulled into this one-on-one confrontation with Pitti and then Pitti beats him in behind. And I felt like Bradley was just chasing the game a little bit too much. And I get why, because Toronto was trying to close those gaps and close the spaces and not allow the players that are good on the ball to get on the ball for Atlanta. And but th- go ahead. No, absolutely. You've go ahead and finish your thought. I, I was just going to say, I felt like when Bradley stopped marking after that, after that penalty kick save, he stopped really marking pity and almost was marking the space and denying, denying the Atlanta team getting in that space in between the center backs where he'd almost drop in as a fifth player in the back line. He did that a lot, actually, in the second half, a little bit in the first half where he would drop in and deny that space saying, you guys can go, you can attack us, but you're not going through the middle. Uh, that really changed the way that Atlanta started to attack. And even th- throughout the game, they didn't want, they couldn't use their width very well because Toronto did a really good job of bringing their wingers back and double teaming every time those the, the wingers and the playmakers for Atlanta got the ball Outside, I, there was numerous times that that player tracking back then just picked up the ball off of a, an Atlanta player trying to dribble out of pressure on one side, and he said, "Okay, thank you, I'll take that." And I think that's it's almost it can go underrated as to how Toronto did have some positive moments defensively in this game, mm-hmm. simply because, especially in that first half, everything seemed to be going Atlanta's way. Yes, you know, Benazay had been able to equalize for Toronto after after Gressel had scored his goal early on in the match. But but that goal really did come against the run of play. It was a beautiful strike, yeah. uh, cutting in on his right foot from the left wing from Benazé. But that wasn't indicative of how the first half had gone, of the momentum right. of the first half had gone. Really but, quick on that. Absolutely. That's the same exact goal that, Philly, that Philadelphia Union scored against Atlanta, though, too. On that same side, dribbling inside on the, left, or, or on the right foot against... Barco and Gressel. I think it was who scored the goal for them. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on it right now, but it, literally the, the exact same goal, same bent ball, far post. 
it, it was crazy how it replicated. I don't know if that was something that uh, Benazé knew was was a, a weak spot in Atlanta that he could expose, or he just thought, hey, I'm going to try to get something on frame because we haven't gotten anything on frame. And, and But that's, I mean, almost even that mentality seemed to do something to settle Toronto down. It, it didn't necessarily pay huge dividends heading into halftime. And even after Vanny go, went ahead and made that substitution, taking off Endo and, and bringing on uh, Larea at the start of the second half to, to adjust his back line just slightly in how they were positioned. But eventually Toronto did sort of weather that storm and, and turn the momentum back into their favor just a little bit. And even though they weren't controlling possession, they started to manage space a little bit more efficiently defensively. They started out that halftime change. I think Vanny called it the three-five-two, but it, it really was just for a while them sitting back a little bit deeper, more congested across that back line, more mm-hmm. vertically and allowing Atlanta to play in the wide areas compared to the first half when they'd found so much, well, not a ton of success, but they'd found a lot of opportunities to play into a central midfield in that space or in and around the midfield for, for Toronto. So that, that defensive shift a little bit, even though it didn't immediately translate into goal-scoring opportunities for Toronto, did sort of start that shift in momentum, at least in my mind, from Atlanta completely controlling things to Toronto settling down, being able to play out of Atlanta's counter-press a little bit, yeah. and then and then start to control the game and go from there. And, and eventually, eventually, even though, again, this is not, not exactly the most well-worked goal from, from Nick DeLeon, but eventually to climb back into the lead. What I started to notice, and I don't know about you, but when I'm watching a game, I'm literally like saying what I think the player on the ball should do or like who they should play. And when I was watching this game, it was really uncharacteristic when Michael Bradley would get the ball time and time again, he was playing back into the pressure of where the ball just came from. I can think of multiple times in the first half where there were four Atlanta players on Toronto's right side attack they're attacking right side and Michael Bradley pops into this little space um, in between the two central midfielders where he's in this huge space almost right at half field and instead of turn being on the half turn and switching the point of attack because that's how you can expose Atlanta he played the ball straight back into that pressure and Atlanta has five six players right there that's exactly what they want they hunted the ball won it and then went after Toronto it was really mistakes in the first half and in poor possession in transition from Toronto that I think gave Atlanta opportunity after opportunity. And I was really shocked that Atlanta didn't punish them on that, especially in the attacking third. I can think of two, three times where Toronto tried to play little quick passes into the pressure Atlanta wants you to do that, right? They almost bait you into that and say, okay, you could possess out of this. Now we're going to hunt. We're going to win that ball back. And we're 18 yards from goal and we're going to get an opportunity. And once Toronto started beating that first line of pressure, and it had a lot to do with the positioning, I think, of Michael Bradley and his ability to open the game up a little bit more in the second half by just turning his hips and playing playing to the opposite side and switching the point of attack. Uh, it, it allowed Toronto to not feel like they were under pressure all the time because there was so much space on the far side with the number of really puts in their attacking. When they attack, all those numbers are so concentrated on one side, really. And so that just opened it up from Atlanta for, excuse me, for Toronto. And the De Leon sub was amazing. What, what a substitution. And 
maybe a little interesting to bring him on at that point where um, Atlanta was was getting some chances and your first 10 minutes of the second half, they were really getting after Toronto. But that sub and the experience that DeLeon has, I think allowed when the pressure did come, he felt comfortable to dribble out of situations, to pass out of situations, that he didn't feel like um, that there was too much pressure, that he couldn't make a good decision. And I think the goal is a perfect, perfect example because it's well played by Toronto. They, they go to the right side and then it comes back across from Pozuelo to De Leon. And what happens is, this is something my, my college soccer coach used to say over and over again. It's a, a reference to Top Gun. And uh, you put on the brakes and you let them fly right by. When you're playing a team that high presses, they are going to run at you so crazy that a lot of the times the, the move that wins the game is a spin turn. And in that moment, De Leon gets pressured from two sides. He spins out of it, a spin turn at the top of the box. And then just, I don't know what Atlanta was doing, having a biscuit and some tea because nobody <laughs> came and pressed the ball. But that goal by De Leon showed his composure under pressure. And I think that is a big you know, you talk about these playoffs and how how much it changed. This is a guy who continues to step up time and time again in playoffs. So um, that was a wicked strike and just a really calm and composed moment from him. And De Leon's entrance into this game, I think, illustrates a larger, more overarching point about how both managers approached their substitution patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was a big storyline from this match is Vanny came in after halftime, he made one change and he didn't hesitate making, you know, his second and third changes, bringing on De Leon and Patrick Mullins in the second half. And, and Frank DeBoer didn't make a change. He, he sat, he sat back and waited a significant amount of time to bring Tito Vialba on. He didn't bring him on until the 81st minute after they'd yeah. gone down that goal. And that, I think that played such a big role in, in the momentum swings in this match. De Leon obviously gets the goal. Even without that strike, the tides, I mean, you could just see it. You could see it watching it on the broadcast, watching how the team's body language you know, was manifesting itself on the screen, watching you know which team was started to get a little bit more possession and was growing into the game a little bit more. All of those cliches really did play an impact into how this game turned out. It, it, was, an, it was a proactive approach from Vanny and more of a reactive one from Frank DeBoer. And I think ultimately that, that really hurt Atlanta United. Yes. I was, I told you I was yelling at the TV or strongly <laughs> talking to the TV about some of the things that I see open up. And I, um, I, I think that was a sub for Atlanta that needed to happen a little bit earlier because it's someone that can come in and change the pace of the game for Atlanta. Vialba is really dynamic he wants to get at players on the dribble and then not only that but his distribution and his ability to get a cross off in in tight situations has been really good and he's had this more substitute role this season and he's still been fairly productive for them I just felt like he needed more time to to get into the game and and maybe also that a little more time for him would have meant that that space would have been a little bit more open where he could get the ball on the wing and Atlanta doesn't already have like all their center backs and everybody sent forward just to throw numbers in the box, right? It would have given him time to get adapted to the game and get after Toronto's back line. I just don't think he was allowed that time. 
down two to one at the end of the game, it, it really would have served Viaba well to come in with a little bit more structure yeah. and more space on that left wing. He right. came in and, and DeBoer put him immediately almost like on the left touch line and just allowed him to to run at whoever was playing, whether you know whether it was the right back or or if Toronto if Lorea had had gone forward and it was one of the center backs on that side, allowed Viaba to just run at that player. But by the time he entered the match it was almost like the opportunity for that had passed and they were better served just putting balls into the box. I mean, you had Brad Guzan up on corner kicks. You had Andrew Gonzalez-Perez playing balls into the box from almost like the right half space. I mean, all of these chaotic moves that you have to go for when you're down in a single elimination playoff game like this with your season on the line. Yeah, it's end of the match tactic. Exactly. The last 10 minutes. You can't give yourself only five minutes. You have to give yourself ten minutes to try to to work that. The last ten minutes of the game, when the when you're down a goal, you need that time. And it so bringing Vialba in then didn't didn't really allow him for the time to do what he can actually do. Not at all. Yeah, it, it didn't serve Atlanta United well to bring him on that late in the match. And ultimately, that played in Toronto FC's hands, who who will be playing against the Seattle Sounders in MLS Cup final in, in just a little bit over a week and a half. And Jordan, as we look ahead to that final match between the Seattle Sounders and between Toronto FC, are there things that you're looking at specifically in this matchup, the clash between Greg Vanny and Brian Schmetzer, from what you've observed in these two conference finals? Is there a specific area that you think is going to have a big effect in, in this final and that could give one team a significant advantage over another? Man, I'm looking at these two teams, and I, I think about the front runners that they have, and Rui Diaz has been... I mean, his performance, yes, on when was it Tuesday? His performance on Tuesday is probably one of the best performances I've seen all MLS club in in the playoffs, right? Because it's not only that he affected the game offensively, but there was times when Rui Diaz was defending in his final, in his defensive third Mm -hmm. and picking the ball off of players. And I think you had mentioned Ladero's work on Atuesta, but when Ladero wasn't on Atuesta and Atuesta thought he had time, Rui Diaz would come in and scoop the ball off of him and be like, ha ha, nice try. Like, I loved that because Rui Diaz was everywhere. And I, it really, that if I'm Toronto, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous about that. Right. Because this guy has like a, he is so fierce and when he gets that look in his eye that something that he he is ready to go I just don't know how you stop him I really don't um so that matchup is going to be really interesting to me with him and if he plays in a similar way that he did in that um, game against LAFC but then on the other side for Toronto I felt like Pozuelo was was quiet today and and didn't do much and um you know i think that the way that toronto was playing it didn't really allow him to do very much so it'll be interesting to see how the team plays to try to get him more incorporated in in what they're doing going forward i don't know off the top of my head it's hard to think of a a certain matchup that really really sticks out what are you thinking when you, when you're thinking about these two teams? Well, first of all, I like I really like that point about Rui Diaz. His performance is something that we didn't touch on probably enough when we went through that LAFC Seattle game, um, but just an absolutely sensational performance. His first time facing off with LAFC, you know, in his Major League Soccer career, and he really was a difference maker in that match. You know, if we look past. Rui Diaz and Pozuelo, who are probably the biggest X-factors in this game. I think another area that I'm going to be looking at is 
is the midfield and how Seattle uses their double pivot and then also the the defensive work of their front two to try to slow down Toronto FC's possession. Because I, I do think the natural ebb and flow of this game could very well turn out to be Toronto controlling possession a little bit more, like we saw them do a lot throughout the regular season and and in stretches against DC United in that first round game and against NYCFC a little bit, although they didn't control as much of the ball in that game against New York City, which is understandable given how Dome Torrent sets up his team to play. But I think with how Seattle succeeded against LAFC, not controlling the ball and, and thriving more on transition attacks and allowing their defensive work to, to make a, a big impact on how they approach that game, I think the contrast between that more defensive-minded outlook compared to how Toronto FC like to control games with their midfield really setting the tempo and Bradley acting as that metronome and they're, they're, you know, Osorio and Delgado as the sort of outside central midfielders and Pozuelo and Endo and, and Benazay, all these guys who can drop into midfield. How uh-huh. Seattle approaches stopping those overloads, because they'll do, a, sometimes they'll do things similar to what Atlanta United tried to do to them tonight on, on Wednesday night as we're recording this. They'll try to overload different areas in midfield and pull out. You know, a specific defensive midfielder on the other team. So watching how not only Roldan and Svensson manage that space, but also, you know, Morris and Jones as those wide midfielders. Morris against LAFC played a big role in in stopping Huge. some of LAFC's attacks yeah. on that side. He he bodied Carlos Vela off the ball. He tucked in a little bit and, and to give some relief to that double pivot that Brian Schmetzer likes to use. So how how the game progresses through midfield with, with the clash of styles, one team liking to own the ball a little bit more, but the other team lethal in transition. I think that's absolutely an area that I'm going to keep my eye on for this one. That's going to be good. That's all I know. Like, how many times are we going to see this matchup and it's going to still be just that much better each time? And Seattle finally gets to host it after being in Toronto for two MLS Cups. Like, ooh. It's it's bonkers, especially... <laughs> The narrative for this match with with neither team really expected to be in this game, whereas yeah. in, in the past, especially with Toronto, it was them w- with the clear talent advantage over a lot of the other teams in the league. And now we almost have this weird double underdog narrative. And I, right. I think that's, that adds a whole nother twist on this exactly. match as well. Yeah. I also wonder, like, okay, Seattle's going to get hype, right? Because they have not host ML- they haven't hosted MLS Cup where their team is actually playing in it. And I just have this feeling that they are going to be ridiculous like I wonder how much of the stadium they open up for for this game because I think this is going to be the match to be at this is going to be ridiculous and uh the atmosphere that Seattle already has and they really they really were the the, the engine behind atmospheres right they they've had it since day one with their rave green right these are the people that that started it i think they're going to show up big time the energy in the stadium is definitely going to be huge it's it's going to do you know, seattle's first 11 a big favor in how they approach the match and there's also going to be a really interesting tactical battle between these coaches and jordan and i touched on it a little bit but we'll have more coverage of that game on the, here on the total soccer show as as that mls cup final nears both you know a little bit of work beforehand and then a show afterwards recapping that final but for now jordan I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with me today and to bring your insight. It was an absolute pleasure getting to talk with you and and hear your perspective on these matches. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for Total Soccer Show for letting us take the keys and and drive this for a day. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you to to Taylor and Daryl for letting us uh, take over the show a little bit and have some fun. Uh, That's all for today's show, everyone. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back soon. 